This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to this week's episode of The Mosaic, your weekly show highlighting the voices of the community. Here, we guide you through today's social issues, introduce you to changemakers, and keep in touch with the arts, music, and events of the city. You can expect extensive research, in-depth analysis, and discussion. From CHUO's news team, this is The Mosaic. Today, we hear about a charity's visit to the House of Commons. Hundreds of kids came all the way from Toronto to meet government officials and celebrated role models for Black History Month. Then we take you back through Mosaic's archives in the wake of World Radio Day. Stick around. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we've got all that and more coming up on The Mosaic. That's the sound of 200 kids filing into the West Block on Parliament Hill. Most of them are wearing white t-shirts with colorful writing, the Children's Breakfast Clubs. This breakfast club is a non-profit organization based in Toronto. They work with members of the community to offer hot, nutritious meals to kids in need. They even do winter coat drives and collect sports and school equipment. And on top of that, the organization holds annual events for the kids, including a visit to the House of Commons. These kids got up at four in the morning, got onto a via rail train at Union Station and headed to the Capitol. They filled the green velvet seats of the House of Commons chamber, ready to hear from valued speakers for Black History Month. So first of all, kids, welcome to Ottawa. Welcome to Parliament Hill. Welcome to your House of Commons. That's Greg Fergus, Speaker of the House of Commons. He's actually the first black speaker of the house and was one of the people celebrated on that visit to Ottawa. He looked on at the kids filling the MPs' seats. Almost nobody gets to sit in these seats, but you do, because you're important. And I want you to remember that you are important. You are valuable. This year, the Children's Breakfast Club is honoring Zanena Akande. In 1990, she ran for NDP and became the first black woman elected to the Legislative Assembly of Ontario. She served as Minister of Community and Social Services and got involved in the Jobs Ontario Youth Program, opening up government positions to disadvantaged youth. Now retired, she expressed gratitude at being celebrated for Black History Month. This is uh, an opportunity for us to make sure that our history is still out there, that it's an integral part of the history of Canada, that we're respected in all of our roles, and that we assume them with comfort, without the battle that so many of us had to go through. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke to the kids. They asked him a series of questions about the cost of living crisis and life in politics. Once he was finished, he headed out, shaking the hands of some incredibly excited kids along the way. Thanks, hey. Great to see you guys. It's another another opportunity, getting out of your 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 hustle and bustle of everyday visual and and coming to a train, being served. Uh, coming to Ottawa, tell, you've seen the Prime Minister telling them how important they are, from uh, Greg Ferguson to tell them how important they are. These messages resonate from, like, deep, and they're going to remember that experience the rest of their lives. That's Vladimir Jean-Pierre. He's a senior manager at Via Rail Canada, which has partnered with the Children's Breakfast Club for this trip. He's been helping out with these Parliament visits for about 14 years now. And the minute we arrived, I was hooked. The minute we arrived, the kids' eyes, their, 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 their wow effect that was in their, in their face from the minute they arrived to the minute they returned was, was to me that I was in the right place. He hasn't stopped since. And despite the long travels of the day trip, he doesn't plan to. For the volunteers, kids, and organizers alike, this event is a major opportunity to learn more about the accomplishments of black Canadians. Any program that's promote awareness of contribution of people that look like them, do things like them, represent their their culture and their community, the more the youth believe, because they they go through so many barriers in their life, and if they don't have a belief system, 
then we, we're not doing our job in forging the next Canada. We want to make sure that the children know what they've come from, what's available for them to go to, that they come from before slavery, a very proud and ambitious group, and that we have the ability to take our places within this country or any other country and do well. For a lot of these children meeting Zanena Akande, Greg Fergus, the Prime Minister, and many MPs, it was also their first time in Ottawa. It was Daniel's first time in the capital, and he was puzzling over the right question to ask the Prime Minister. I don't know what to, I will ask him, but I think I'll ask him something good in the future. For some, it was their very first time on the train. But they're all kids, and they all benefit from this interaction, the interaction on the train, they get to respect each other, to know each other, to make friends with each other. And that's what this is truly all about, is educating the broader community to the contribution that the black community makes. That's Rick Gosling, founder of the Children's Breakfast Club. They started in 1983 and were incorporated in 1984. When we started, there was only, I don't know, eight or nine kids that came down. But there was one little boy on the main floor there, he and his sister. And this little boy one morning ate 26 pancakes. And I sat there going... Where is it going? I mean, they were as big as he was. He realized it made a difference for those kids to show up to school fed and ready to learn. And there are studies supporting this, too. Teachers have observed decreased academic performances, behavioral issues, less concentration, and more illnesses in kids who come to school hungry. So Rick expanded, bringing in more and more kids and volunteers to the children's breakfast clubs. And we're now serving 221,000 meals in a school term. And we've been asked now not only to serve breakfast, but to expand into lunch because the food insecurity is so bad. Mm -hmm. um, so we're trying to address those needs. And we just, we're a small organization. We're all volunteers. And so we, you know, we can only expand so much, you know, at a time. But the demand is just so huge. And we're trying to help as many children as we possibly can. Rick says they serve the kids with care. They don't just give them an apple, they slice it up and portion it for them. When the kids walk in the door, the leaders know each and every one of their names. And when it comes to volunteering to help the kids out, there's something specific that they're looking for. Just love the kids, care for the kids, and make sure that they're respected and valued. The organization's annual visits have gone on for about 25 years now. They've met prime ministers like Stephen Harper, Paul Martin, and Jean Chrétien too. Rick echoes what Vlad said about the kids remembering this experience for the rest of their lives. He talks about an experience he had at a carnival in Scarborough in the summer. And there was two young police officers that were young men that had grown up in our breakfast club. And they said to me, you know, if it hadn't been for your program, I wouldn't be here today. And that's what drives me to do this, because I realize the impact that it has. Uh, I'm, I'm super blessed and, uh, and I'm, I look forward every year for that trip. To learn more about the Children's Breakfast Club or to make a donation, head to breakfastclubs.ca. That was my coverage from Parliament of the Children's Breakfast Club's annual visit to Ottawa. Tuesday was World Radio Day. As a community radio station, CHUO prides itself on amplifying the voices of your community. One way the station does this is through over 50 shows broadcasting different languages, cultures, and music. I spoke with Darren Sutherland in the fall. He's the host of CHUO's The Circle, a weekly show highlighting Indigenous artists. We covered his journey into broadcasting and the significance of audio storytelling. Here's that conversation from our archives. Yeah, so diving right into it, you've hosted The Circle for 12 years now. And way to make me feel old. Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't have the radio experience beforehand, though. So what got you into that role? Uh, it was uh, the host at the time. I, I'm I'm not I'm not the first host of the circle. Uh, I am the the third. The show was started by Lisa Abel, and then Jocelyn Formsma took it over after. And uh, Jocelyn and I know each other from the community. Uh, she's also Cree. I'm Cree. In case that wasn't already stated. And uh, yeah, I, I, Jocelyn's a very busy person and I guess she, she just reached out, took a shot on me to come in and uh, guest host it. And when I did it, I had, you're right, absolutely zero experience, but uh, I went in 
with some reassuring words from Jocelyn and a promise that uh, the program manager at the time would come in and uh, give me a hand. So he was there with me in the studio and uh, <laughs> he worked the boards. I, I mostly did uh, the talking and picked out some of the music. And was that like something that you fell in love with right away or is it something that you grew to appreciate? I mean, it was very fun. Uh, you know, it was like, I was nervous, you know, I wanted to do a good job, but uh, I didn't think it would be a recurring thing, right? Uh, at, the, at the time, I thought it was just helping out Jocelyn. And, you know, when she came back, she's like, oh, would you like to come in and co-host? And I was like, yeah, actually, I would like that. And eventually, somewhere down the road, Jocelyn, Jocelyn went to law school and she asked, me if I could take it over and I was like yeah you know I've, I've enjoyed doing this and like yeah I could, I could continue doing it and yeah it was, it was it's some I don't know like the, the question like did I immediately love it I'm like it was exciting yes uh have I grown to love it more over time uh yeah for sure there's like you know you you create just a program that you like doing and then you have people you enjoy speaking with and it makes it memorable like I've got I've got a, I've got a lot of memorable stories like of that have come out of like people I've got to meet doing the show, uh, interviewing or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then also in your work doing it, you kind of found out a bit about like your family from the Fort Albany first nation. Like they also have connections with radio and you've got generations of family that has connections with radio and you've written about that. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about it? Yeah, no. Yeah. I wrote an article for shameless and it ended up being about radio (laughs) Uh, and it was talking about like oral traditions or radio is oral traditions. And for a lot of indigenous communities, I think we often talk about the importance of transmitting stories in that way. And well, during the research, I didn't, I didn't really know, but I, I remember from my childhood, my mom would always be playing the radio and, you know, I actually still have that old radio from my childhood in my home. It's really awesome. And I remember like the stories that my mom would tell me about, you know, her mom's home or our family home in Fort Albany. And apparently, you know, like when I like when I started asking more questions about it, she explained that our home was one of the only homes with a radio. And that would that would bring people from the community over for like, you know, they want to listen to music and like they come visit. And we were lucky because if you don't know where Fort Albany is, it's a remote flying community on the west coast of James Bay. So back you know, in my grandmother's day, gosh, that must have been like, and my, my mom being a child. So like that would be, that must have been the 50s, 60s. You know, there weren't a lot of antennae out there, like strong enough to catch signals that far north. So uh, we were just fortunate that they were able to catch signals from this, like this Air Force base, like a little to the south. I'm not an expert, but you know, the signals would go there and then bounce off that antenna. And then we would be able to catch a couple of a couple of channels and then draw people out. And uh, I guess the other connection there was my cousin, Greg, another person I reached out to after speaking with my mom, you know, she, like she said, you should, you should speak with your cousin, Greg. He worked in radio for a time, which was an understatement. Like my cousin, Greg was apparently part of the, I guess the creation of Wawate um, in the North, which was like, like a Cree language radio station in like around the James Bay. And uh, they would do programming in the language and you know, just play a lot, a lot of those old, a lot of those old tunes that we were catching off the off that Air Force Base antenna. But um, yeah, uh, but that, and that was like the '80s or something. So yeah, I, I spoke with Greg a great deal about it. But that experience, I learned so much about the history of radio in the James Bay area. You know, and so much that isn't captured in the article I wrote for Shameless. But um, you know, maybe one day I can return to it, and uh, you know write those write those stories down or maybe more appropriately uh you know maybe do a podcast or something and transmit those uh, uh <laughs> with the oral tradition the, the old the old ways yeah kind of like a, a sequel like picking up where you left off a bit yeah just just I, like I, again it just the article had to be i think the web version was like a thousand words and the the print version was like 750 uh, and you know i, I it, it reads well, like I, not to toot my own horn. I know I, I'm so grateful for like, you know, my mom and like my cousin Greg for contributing to that and all the other people that helped inform it. It, it does read well. I'm really happy with it. But um, yeah, just I think there's so much more to that, that's, that story or, or stories from uh, the James Bay area. 
could be multiple episodes if you wanted to make it a podcast too. It would be interesting. Yeah, maybe, it, would, it would be so much more popular if maybe there was like some some murder in the north uh, around the time of the creation. True crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what is your family like? You got to keep in touch with with your cousin Greg a little bit and your mom about this kind of topic. What do they think about the work that you're doing on the circle? My mom is my number one fan. <laughs> <laughs> my mom is my number one fan. She doesn't live in Ottawa anymore. She there, she did live here for uh, quite a few years, but now she's back in Fort Albany. Um, but when she was in the city, she would uh, she would like message me after every show, like that was good. I like this song, or I appreciate what this guest had to say. Uh, and and Greg was also um, pretty stoked that there was another another person in our family doing uh, doing radio. That's sweet. I, I'm running to the end of my, my list of questions, but basically, at the end of the day, it's been 12 years with The Circle, with CHUO too, and so at the end of the day, what keeps you going with this position as a radio host? Well, I think it's important to, you know, make space for Indigenous voices, like, whether that's, like, in TV or on radio, and I think that's kind of the main thing. Like, again, I'm not the first host of The Circle. I'm the third. And the program itself has been running for, I'm not, I, I won't even lie to you. I'm not entirely sure how long it's been in the air, on the air easily over 15 years. Uh, and based on my understanding, that makes it like one of, if not the longest uh, running Indigenous radio programs in Ottawa. And I don't know, there's something there's something important about that and I I I I want to continue you know sharing stories I want to continue talking about you know the the most recent indigenous music that's coming out and yeah I don't know just I think that's important and, and, and until or unless I find someone else who's willing to take over the show then uh I'll, I'll continue doing that as long as my my personal and professional life allows me to and uh, people can tune in Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Um, is there anything else that you would like people to know about The Circle or anything else you'd like to add? Um, I guess the only thing I would like to say that we haven't really touched on yet is like, you know, thanks or miigwech to CHUO. Like uh, it's it's been the home of The Circle for its entire run. And, you know, I hope it continues to be the home of The Circle and yeah, like kudos miigwech to uh, CHUO for making, you know, a space uh, for Indigenous voices like within its community. And uh, yeah, it's tremendously important. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for taking the time with me today, Darren. No problems, Lauren. That was my conversation with Darren Sutherland from CHUO's The Circle. Manitoba's premier, Wab Canoe, says a search of the Prairie Green landfill could happen this year. The Winnipeg area landfill is believed to be the site where the bodies of two First Nations women were dumped. Canoe said his government wants to ensure the families of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Myron are involved in the process. Last year, the police said they believed the remains of Harris and Myron to be taken to the landfill in May of 2022. The families of these women have been fighting to have the landfill searched ever since traveling province to province, urging government action. They came to Ottawa in September, and Ana Sofia de la Parra has more. The families of Morgan Harris and Mercedes Miran joined supporters for an international day of action to search the landfills on Monday. Protests took place in at least 17 cities across the country, including Ottawa. A crowd gathered in front of Parliament to urge governments to search the landfill and bring the women home. Earlier on, the families met with Crown Indigenous Relations Minister Gary Anadasangri. You know, we did have a meeting with the minister today, and it was very disappointing. Yeah, it it was very disappointing. We've been sitting in rooms with municipal governments, provincial governments federal government, we've sat at the table for months, continually telling them, what is it that we need? We need to bring these women home. 
families are continually having to tell them their thoughts, their feelings, their needs. They're re-traumatizing the families and that's what really made me angry today. And I was actually ready to just sit and stay and camp out in that office today. That's Hidi Cook. She's the chief of Mispawistic Cree Nation and also co-chair of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs Women's Council. She spoke at the demonstration on Monday, carrying the message that no matter what, these women will be found. I feel very confident that we are going to bring these women home. I feel it. I feel it in my heart. I feel it in my spirit. I know we will. And so we're going to continue on carrying that message. We are going to search the landfill with or without government. And when we do make that call out for everyone to come to the landfill, I hope to see all of you there. Miigwech. Thank you. Forensic experts conducted an indigenous-led feasibility study on a search of the landfill. They confirmed the safety risk can be mitigated. Yet the women remain missing in the landfills as their families seek closure and justice. Kathai Merrick is Grand Chief for the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. Here's what she said, demonstration about the government's inaction towards the women. This is what happened in Manitoba, where a serial killer killed our women, and our women ended up in landfills. And that should not be. That is not acceptable. Only garbage ends up in landfills, not bodies of our loved ones. As previous speakers, we need to bring them home. We need to do the right ceremonies for them so they can carry on their journey. As for now, current governments haven't committed to any kind of funding. The Day of Action brought groups and individuals together to continue to advocate for change. We are going to hold them accountable. One way or another, we're going to hold them accountable. And that's why we need everyone to come together. For CHUO, I am Ana Sofia de la Parra. That was Anna Sophia de la Parra on Parliament Hill as the families of Mercedes Myron and Morgan Harris urged the governments to search the Manitoba landfill. At that September demonstration, we heard from Heidi Cook and Kathy Merrick. Wab Kinu was elected as Manitoba's premier a month after this segment aired, and he's committed to searching the landfill. Now we take you back to our archives featuring a program run through OPERG at the U Ottawa campus. A culinary experience at the St. Faustina Church. A group of students chop, dice, and boil through recipes together. This program is run by Taran Maharaj, who's been teaching it for about eight years. He's aiming to combat food poverty, especially among international students. For Maharaj, this is a way of giving back to the community, teaching them to fish instead of just giving them one. You know, a lot of the things that I do is embedded in what my dad taught me. And uh, one of the things was he said, you know, it's never how much you have, it's how little you can give back. And this is the little that I can give back. So I am humbled and happy to be here to be able to do that. Many Canadians are experiencing food insecurity as the cost of groceries climbs higher and higher. But food poverty is completely different according to Maharaj. You know, for me, food insecurity is I go to the kitchen, I open my fridge, and I see food. But I want a steak. I have food. Uh, insecurity is that I don't have the food that I want. Whereas food poverty is, I, I, I need food, I don't have food. I open the fridge and the fridge stares back at me, it's empty. International students are more likely to face this issue. From 2022 to 2023, there was an 8% jump in tuition for an international undergrad student. In 2022, the, uh, the Canadian government opened up a new law, which was a copy and paste from uh, the SOP, the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program, which allows international students now work full time. 
So you're working full time for forty thousand, which is taxable, but you're paying forty thousand dollars a year in tuition. And we all have so much research to show that a, a full time student should not work full time. It's oxymoronic. The international students pay much higher fees than domestic students. And students already face a stream of deadlines, assignments, and discussion posts. Adding financial burdens and employment into the mix leaves them with a little time to care for themselves and focus when class does come around. When you have to work extra hours, again, it starts putting an emotional and physical and mental drain on the student. When you get to that state, you know, um, I can speak about something that's taboo in, in, in grad students, is you start now seeing over the past two years an increase in suicide or attempted suicide among grad students, and particularly more so amongst international students. A lot of stu international students are caving under the pressure and they're leaving Canada without a degree, but debt-ridden. And when they get back to their country of origin, it's, they were alienated here in Canada, and now they're alienated within their own society because they didn't bring that joy, that, that, that reward of a degree. They're bringing shame because they're different. The program also brings a sense of unity for those of different cultures and backgrounds. It provides the opportunity to welcome the group into your own culture. Yesterday, the group celebrated Diwali, they talked about the Hindu celebration and prepared a meal together. So these are the things that the students not just only are learning about, um, you know, ab about self-esteem, but they're also learning to build bridges to understand different communities. How do I, how do I build a bridge instead of, you know, blow up the bridge? Mm -hmm. And we do that through food. For those interested in checking out the weekly program or helping in any way, you can check out OPERG's CSL postings. That was my coverage from the archives of Taran Maharaja's program, highlighting cooking experiences with international students. And now, we take a look back at Veronica Martin's coverage from the Byward Market. In this segment, she dives into the performances of Canadian artists at a local club. Ottawa, are you there? Thanks for joining us on our What's Next Tour. This weekend, I had the absolute pleasure of hearing some great music at the 27 Club down in the Byward Market. What you're hearing now was our opening act, Ottawa local Hannah Vig. Hannah has two songs on release right now, Nostalgic and Clean Break. The song you're hearing right now, Juliet, is currently unreleased, but as Hannah said herself... Hi, my name is Hannah Vig. You can find me on Spotify and follow me on Instagram. Keep an eye out for an upcoming EP that I have dropping in the winter. We also got a performance from EU Ottawa student Jules, that's J-U-L with three Zs. This bossa nova-inspired track, partially in Spanish, pays homage to Jules's Brazilian and Peruvian heritage. Jules has several songs available to stream, including 1212, released in April. They have an EP coming out soon as well. Make sure to look out for it.
Lastly, we had our headliner, Toronto's New Friends. What you're hearing right now is Purple Candy, their most popular song to date, sitting at almost 7.9 million streams on Spotify. band had a special shout out to a dedicated fan. Meeting fans, we had a, we had one fan here tonight who came to almost half of the entire tour. Wow! She's now become like genuinely one of our friends. She's the best. Katie, if you're hearing this, I think I... And a classic story on getting the band together. I got, I got dumped like two, minute, two minutes, <laughs> two into, minutes college. into college. <laughs> and then I wrote a song and then I needed someone to sing it because I suck at singing. And I met Stefan and I met Cole. And we started new friends and then we met Conrad and then we met Nico. And that's Stefan. Perfect. We're all just... They also have a lot of new music coming out soon. Yeah. But we have a lot of new music coming soon. Check it out. Don't miss it. It's going to be amazing. Check it out. It's not out yet. Oh, yeah. Check <laughs> it out. Check it out once it comes out. But we <laughs> We'll end this segment with a bit of their song Doomed off their recent EP, Camaro. That was Veronica Martin's footage from our archives of the performances at Club 27.
Over the summer, Meta started to block news availability from its platforms like Instagram and Facebook. This came as a reaction to Canada's Online News Act, which aimed to ensure dominant platforms compensate news businesses for their content. Meta's reaction has been unyielding. CHUO itself lost its access to post on Instagram and Facebook. The station is currently operating under CHUO.media. But back when Meta's news blocking began, I spoke with Ottawa MPP Joel Harden about what exactly it means for independent news outlets. So today we're talking about Meta and Google's moves to take down Canadian news from their sites. Um, so just diving right into it, I'd like to talk a bit about Bill C-18, the Online News Act, which is the bill that was passed by the government and came as media outlets have experienced years of downfall in their revenue and newsrooms are closing the doors at increasing rates. And this bill that was passed, Meta and Google have kind of called it unworkable. So I want to know your personal take on this Online News Act. Uh, well, I think what we've seen is, you know, a stark example at how very powerful people, billionaires who run tech companies control our access to news or attempt to. So I am not necessarily in this debate, Lauren, falling on the side of saying this regulation is going to save news in Canada. I think we had a huge problem with the concentration of news in corporate hands already and difficulty for alternative voices. And I don't need to convince CHUO how difficult it is to fundraise and get a program together every single year. But the news media and monopolization of the news media, big groups like post media, uh, has been a problem for a long time. But what this shows is is not just the giants and the influence of the news giants in Canada. This is These are the global tech goliaths essentially waging a strike of their own, like an employer strike, to try to compel a government not to do something. And you know, when I was getting ready for our conversation, I noticed what had happened in Australia, a very similar story where a country had decided to require uh, Google and Meta and other of these companies, and really we're talking about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and these other billionaires, to essentially cough up money uh, for accessing news made by Canadian content creators. And I'm not talking about post-media, I'm talking about journalists like yourself, people who file stories, people who work for a living in a context where newsrooms are closing everywhere. Uh, and people, you know, gaining college and university training are having a hard time finding full-time permanent positions. This is, I think, a reasonable thing for the federal government to ask these global tech goliaths to contribute modestly for their usage of being a platform for accessing news for Canadians on their services. But as we see in Australia, the, you know, the response from Google and Meta has been extremely heavy-handed. And I think what should alarm us all is the degree to which they control people's access to news, because more and more Canadians are getting their news through social media. There is an immediate effect of people all of a sudden not being able to access a story on Instagram or on Facebook. That is uh, you know, very obvious to Canadians now. If it's ever been theoretical, how much power do these tech goliaths have? They have a considerable amount of power. Um, so I'll just end with this, and I've talked for too long, I'm sorry, but I, I feel the need to say this. A lot of us have been thinking about how to consume our news more mindfully in this moment of not just Canadian corporate consolidation and news content, but these global tech goliaths. And we have been choosing uh, subscriber-based news, campus-based news like CHUO. Uh, I think of a platform like Canland, you know, that is an incredible content creator, but you pay for it. And it's been independently funded by subscribers. And in your case, you know, CHU is affiliated with the University of Ottawa and, you know, basically draws upon the University of Ottawa community. And that is that is another way out of thinking we can solve this at the regulatory level federally. We'll see where this bill goes. But for me, what it, the balance uh, sheet I have, the conclusion I draw at the end of this is, how imperative it is for us to make sure we get independent sources of news. And then more importantly, for a, a truly dying Canadian news industry, that we actually make sure that the tech goliaths have to pay for their use of content created by Canadian journalists. Mm -hmm. 
And and as a graduate of Carleton School of Journalism, I hear you a thousand percent. It is not easy. Uh, but what Justin Trudeau and the government has said about Meta and Google's response to this is they said that it's bullying tactics. Is that what's what's going on with these global tech goliaths? Yes, yes. But where I think it's a little bit more complicated than what the prime minister is alleging is bullying has been going on in Canadian news long before this. If, if you look at the treatment of dissident voices in Canadian news on issues of great controversy, whether it's the rise of the movement for Black Lives in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the fact that before then, people raising critical questions about police reform were persecuted. Uh, people raising critical questions about human rights on any number of levels, be it for Indigenous peoples here in Canada or human rights preference. I'm on my way this afternoon to a human rights rally on Parliament Hill for Afghan women uh, who feel ignored and left behind by the Canadian government. After years of platitudes and pledges, the Canadian government has just turned their backs on, on Afghanistan in many respects, and they feel ignored. And when you raise these perspectives, you often get minimalized or dismissed by a lot of the mainstream pundits, the mainstream content creators, who, of course, are answerable to big local giants like Post Media and these other conglomerates. So that's where I quibble with the Prime Minister. A billionaire is going to do what a billionaire can do. <laughs> what I would say we need to do as well, and this is beyond uh, this particular bill, is all of us as Canadians need to think about where we get our news. And if it means sacrificing a few lattes a month or you know a few extravagances a month so we can fund independent content creators, that is a huge important step because we need independent news to thrive in this environment while it's being attacked, not just by meta, but by post media and so many other of these concentrated content creators. Mm-hmm. Especially as subscriber-based news outlets have suffered so significantly. But right now, Canadian news publishers are asking the Competition Bureau to investigate if meta has overstepped in this power dynamic that's going on. Yeah. But to ask like a pretty basic question, why is this such an ordeal? Um, it, it's Well, first of all, what I understand from the Competition Bureau is that they were investigating before the complaint was filed by Mike D'Souza and five other journalists, as I understand it. So it, it isn't something that's invisible. I mean, you have the prime minister of our country calling it bullying. So they're going to be paying attention and they're going to be doing, we would hope, their jobs as guardians of the public interest. Uh, that's fine. But again, I I think we as news consumers we have to not be distracted by the bouncing red ball here. And the bouncing red ball is the perception that our access to news, our access to understanding the truth, as it were, is a choice between whether Justin Trudeau's tax gets passed, a regulatory regime gets passed, or whether Meta gets a free hand and a free market. I think that is a false choice. I think I support the idea of billionaires paying a fair share for what they use in our country as a rule, no doubt about it. But beyond that, um, and this is what I'm heartened to hear, actually, Lauren, is that uh, groups like Candleland or the Sandy and, Sandy and Nora podcast or Jacobin Radio, I consume a lot. of. There's a great local podcast here called Doctor versus Comedian run by a local physician and a popular comedian, Ali Hassan, who gets a lot of profile on different radio and news programs. These podcasts, which are made with great, as you know, great sweat and labor, are enormously popular. Increasingly, I'm finding a lot of people I talk to in Ottawa Centre are consuming a lot of the news through podcasts. They are plugging out of the Google links that were available before recently or the meta links that were available before recently. And if anything, they use social media to follow particular content creators they trust. It's not so much the platform. It's the journalists who are curating the content that they trust. I certainly felt that way during the convoy. During the convoy, I can literally count on one hand the amount of journalists who were going right into the eye of the hurricane, and they deserved huge credit for doing so. But, you know, there were a lot of people just kind of looking at news uh, wires and checking trends on web browsers and filing stories, you know, like that. To keep up with the pace of demand, a lot of people are forced into that position. But I I tip my hat to the people who are, are struggling inside the news industry, but also the people who are innovating outside the mainstream news industry. I think they, they're they getting love, I can tell you. They're getting love, but they need even more love. And that's that's the way we'll get past the Justin Trudeau versus Mark Zuckerberg drama. It's much bigger than that. Like we we as Canadians have a proud tradition in our country, at least, of 
uh, people like Marshall McLuhan in earlier eras questioning how and where we consume our news. And we have to keep questioning that and, and rewarding the people doing the hard work of staffing and running campus radio, uh, running independent podcasts, because, you know, honestly, that is often how we're going to get some of our most creative and independent perspectives. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that shout out. Um, but as we see these these um, content links kind of disappearing from Facebook and Instagram, it's nice to know that there are other platforms for people to get their news, there like are. podcasts, like you say. Um, but yeah, there are. it's not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. But the links are disappearing and people are shocked at like such an increasing rate at how much these links are just being blocked. And Google's eventually going to be mm-hmm. next. It's not exactly clear when the links are going to be removed from their search and news and discover. But looking at the responses from these tech giants, uh, what is the appropriate response to all of it? Well, I think at the, at the federal level, the, the government, the prime minister is right to insist that they need to compensate content creators for their sharing of content, which has been duly created through intellectual labor. I mean, I think that's absolutely fair. I'm sorry if I'm sounding like a broken record one, but it's not the end of the argument for me. I mean, that is... That may be how some people in the federal government want to frame the debate. It's, uh, you know, once we come to the rescue, everything will be fine. Things aren't great before that. I mean, the Ottawa Citizen has literally closed, physically closed its newsroom off the uh, 417. It doesn't exist anymore. People are working from home. People I know who recently retired from that newspaper tell me that the amount of pressure to file incredible amounts of work on short deadlines by yourself, often with a cell phone going to major events, it's it's unheard of. And this is what's happening well beyond meta. This is what's happening in the news industry as they are being pushed. Because if you listen to Jesse Brown and Kendall Land, their perspective is, and I find it interesting, because these mainstream news agencies became so reliant on advertising and indirect or direct government subsidies, and we saw in the pandemic, they got direct government subsidies. They became easy pickings, easy prey for people like meta, because Meta can claim they have all of these users. They can turn to the mainstream news agencies and say, you know, stop asking us to pay for your content. You're lucky we're giving you more traffic at all. You're dying, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's capitalism. That's the way capitalism sadly works is that the, uh, the big fish consume the smaller fish. But I, again, I think the story is how a lot of those smaller fish are getting together independent of the mainstream media that exists in Canada and independent of the global tech goliaths and creating really interesting news, really, really interesting news. And and we as people, we can make a choice to consume our news there. And a lot of it is available online. A lot of it is available on podcasts. And a lot of it is available in events you can physically turn up to in our city. I'm wearing my House of Paint t-shirt. You know, art and content creation still happens at a local level, we are not completely beholden to Mark Zuckerberg to promote it. We can we can promote it and consume it ourselves. On that note, those are all the questions I had for you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's totally my pleasure. Be well. That was my conversation with Joel Harden from the summer. We've covered many performances on the mosaic. One of our favorite segments comes from CHUO's Zachary Malky in the fall time. He brought interviews with a cast, crew, and audience of Sweeney Todd. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a warning. Stay at home, close your windows, and keep your door locked. If your husband, your son, your brother, or your father wants to go out for a nice shave at the barbershop, please make sure they stay at home. I know what you're asking right now. What's going on? What's the matter? What's happening in Ottawa? Ladies and gentlemen, Sweeney Todd is back in the streets. And that was the show in the Algonquin Commons Theatre, directed by the magnificent Jason Siddler and his amazing cast. Here are some records of the show. Interviews from the audience. They they bypassed my expectations. The cast. It's such a complex character, I just couldn't resist. And the director. Uh, It's nice now that we got the orchestra, all the costumes finished, all the props, and they get on the big stage and you just see more coming out of them, right? And the Algonquin Common Theatre won't stop here, ladies and gentlemen. New upcoming events during this month of November. Make sure to buy your ticket. 
Did you enjoy the show? I loved it. I, I bypassed my expectations. Uh, this is exactly what we wanted to hear. And uh, was it exactly the same as the movie? Oh, it was almost the same. If anything, I think this was better. I thought this was much better than the movie. Even the acting, the cast, the crew? Oh, yes. I thought the, um, they, they really represented the original Broadway, which I really liked the uh, very bass baritone type of uh, acting. Yeah. Even with the orchestra? Oh, I loved it. I, loved, I always love a live orchestra. <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. What inspired you to actually play Srinitar, which is very, very complex character? Yeah, it's not a character you can, you can bring home with you, um, so I had to be very balanced on how I actually rehearsed my character to make sure I was in a good place when I was rehearsing some of the darker stuff, but it's such a complex character, I just couldn't resist. Uh, you know, he's in my vocal range, he's my age range, it's not very, very often you get one of those uh, roles come, come along, and it's such an amazing story to tell, so I couldn't... I couldn't I couldn't not, but audition for it at least. So. Also, one last question. If you have an advice to give to young actors, which one would you? <laughs> some, some would say get out of Ottawa because all the acting is elsewhere, but um, honestly, I think it, it's, just a, it's just a get out there, audition for as many different things as you can and get the experience. If you don't have the experience, it's, uh, it's hard to kind of build up your, your, your character development, your, your talent. So. Um, just get out there and, and look for there's tons of stuff going on on in Ottawa take advantage of it and get involved so well, thank you so much sir. thank you yeah, so no much. problem thank you. the first question is did you actually as a director and as public part of the audience did you actually enjoy the show of course I love the show I, I watched it about 400 times now. and every time there's something else that someone brings uh, it's nice now that we got the orchestra, all the costumes finished all the props and they get on the big stage and you just see more coming out of them right? because like, they can really dig deep and every day one of them will throw something in that you didn't catch before and that's yeah, it's nice to be able to get on the big stage with it. And another question, what actually motivated you to do actually this show, to build this show? Uh, we wanted to do, uh, we like the non-traditional musical, a little darker. I always love, I always look for music first. If I love the music, then I'll look at story. And if I like the story, this one, even though it's very dark, it has a good moral to it. In the end, he chooses his hate and revenge and it causes him to accidentally kill the love of his life, which is dark, but it's still a moral story, right? That don't let your hate consume you, literally. <laughs> literally consume you in this case. I like the show, I really did. And another last question, if you have an advice to give to the young future director, what's your advice? Uh, biggest thing is trying to grow the community. Um, and when you're talking to your actors, let them play. Always let them play first. Like, you have your, your eye on what you're looking for, give them that and let them play. And then once they're, they settle into that character, then you can start pushing, pushing a little bit more and a little bit more. But people will surprise you. You think, like, somebody is dry or they're better at this. But if you don't let them play you've already locked them into something. So you, when, when you just let them go, sometimes you see stuff that you're like, oh, I like that better. So that would be my advice to new directors. Right, there you go. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of The Mosaic. Thanks so much for tuning in. Music for The Mosaic is by Halizna. To listen to this episode and previous ones, go to chuo.fm slash podcasts. If you're interested in joining our news team, email news at chuo.fm. We'll see you next week, Thursday at 1 p.m. 